So we are in Luke chapter 18. The kingdom of God has been our overarching theme through the last couple chapters of Luke. This is a very, very critical concept for us to understand the kingdom of God because God is king over all things. He has made all things and he rules over all things. He is king whether the people of his creation, whether the people that populate this world choose to acknowledge him as king or not, he is king. So recently the word has described to us how God's kingdom is a present thing. Jesus is currently ruling all of creation as he is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. We can experience the kingdom in the now, in the very present way, as we bow ourselves to him right now, as our hearts are surrendered to him, we can experience that right reign over our lives. As we choose to follow after the word of God, which gives us direction and instruction, we can see how his reign over our lives is good for us, is a blessing to us. And so we can see this present kingdom even today as we worship together as a gathered family. And we've seen that the kingdom is also something that is growing, that it is expanding, and it will one day come in a very powerful way when Jesus returns to earth. That God has greater goals for this kingdom that he is establishing day by day. In light of that truth, Jesus has been touching on the doctrine of the kingdom of God by helping us answer important questions. Questions such as, am I part of the kingdom of God? Who gets to be in this kingdom and who is not in the kingdom of God? How can I experience the blessings of his kingdom now, even though I live in a fallen world where sin abounds and where Satan does have some degree of freedom to wreak havoc? How can I experience the blessings of God's kingdom in the, the present day? We've been answering questions like, what can we do to be ready for the return of the king? How can we keep our eyes on this event that has been promised to us and will surely one day come? And, and finally, what is my role in God's kingdom? Why did he call me to this kingdom? What part can I play? How can I show the world around me the glory of God that has been revealed to my heart through Christ Jesus? Last week as we studied in chapter 18 of Luke, the, the text seemed to focus on prayer, but the subject of the kingdom and who belongs in the kingdom was still an important topic even though the parable we studied was mostly focused on prayer. Jesus contrasts two hypothetical prayers. These were not real people that he encountered. It was a parable. And so he talked about the first one who was a tax collector, a humbled man who was not lifting himself up, but was instead beating himself down in, a, in, in some regards. He recognized how wretched he was. He recognized his deep need for the Lord God and for God to redeem him. And then that image of a broken man who, who desperately cried out to the Lord was contrasted to the image of a Pharisee, a man who was righteous in his own mind, a man who felt he had done plenty to receive blessing and to earn his place in the presence of God. Jesus concludes the parable that we studied last week by declaring an important truth regarding the two prayers. This one, the tax collector, was justified before God. This other one, the Pharisee, who was self-righteous, was not justified before God. So while this parable did have a, a, an overarching theme of prayer, the undercurrent that we were learning from that prayer is about the kingdom again. Who gets to be there? Who is justified by God in such a way that they could enter in to this perfect place where God himself wants us to dwell 
with him. And so we see that parable was not just about our attitude. It was about who has been made fit for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, friends, is a perfect place. It is a place for those who have overcome sin. It is for those who, has been, who have been made right by the blood of Jesus Christ, our atoning sacrifice. The one who realizes he brings no remarkable offering to the Lord is the one who belongs in the kingdom of God. The one who understands that he brings only his brokenness and appeals to God's mercy and grace, this is the one who has been justified. This passage of Scripture, which we will read today, the verses directly following that parable, should be understood as a continuation of that thematic clarification regarding the kingdom of God. And so we've got our Bibles open, and I'm going to read out loud for us as you follow along in your Bible. Chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 today. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Last week, Jesus set a surprising example before his disciples. He encouraged them to follow the lead of this tax collector. Not the kind of person that you would expect the Jewish people to, to lift up as a shining example of goodness. People despised tax collectors. They were the vermin of the Hebrew world. And yet Jesus says there's something about this particular tax collector that makes him an example worth following. And so too does he surprise us again by showing these disciples that even in their midst were tiny little examples of humble faith that they needed to learn to follow as an example for themselves. The account of verses 15 through 17 appears in both Matthew 19, 13 through 15, and also Mark 10, 13 through 16 with some slight variations. We know that all those books of the Bible are gospel books, which means they record the life, the ministry, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so this particular story was important enough that it showed up in three of the four gospel accounts. Each one has slight variations, so I might include a little detail or fact from one of these other passages. So you might want to go back this week and read those on your own time uh, to kind of get up to speed as to the, all the information we have regarding this encounter. Each make the strong statement that anyone who desires to be a part of the kingdom of God must receive the kingdom like a little child would. The children in these verses were there because they had been brought to Jesus. The same story is told again in three of the four Gospels. And in each of those stories, the little ones, in Matthew and Mark, they call them children. But here in Luke, we have a different Greek word. It literally is infants. Or if you wanted to, to, to be really literal, it means children who must be carried. Ones that are too small to bring themselves. And so Luke is using the term infants instead of little children. It is clear that these little ones did not just run up to Jesus on their own. They were brought forth to Jesus because their parents wanted him to touch them. Now, why would they want Jesus to touch them? They are seeking what was very common in the Hebrew culture. They wanted a blessing from this man that they saw as a powerful man of God. They wanted him to pray for the little babies. They wanted Jesus to come in contact with them and to speak some words to them that might 
guide them as they raise these children up that might help them to see how they could better point their children to the Lord God. Perhaps they had heard about Jesus' healing power and maybe there was something wrong with their child and they were hoping that maybe that touch would heal their little baby. Who wouldn't want a blessing from Jesus? If these people suspected that perhaps Jesus was truly of God and was a man set apart for his ministry, it makes a lot of sense that they would want his blessing on their kids. Everybody wants what is best for their kids. And so, considering it's so natural for them to come, why would the disciples rebuke the people who brought these infants to Jesus? How could they be so callous? Well, the scripture doesn't really elaborate on that. It doesn't tell us the heart of these disciples, but we can make some educated guesses about it. Maybe it was due to the fact that in the empire of Rome in general, in the, in the world that Jesus lived in, children were not considered a very important part of society. Children were not considered a great thing. Now, among the Hebrews, children were more highly looked after. They were more highly regarded. The scripture of the Old Testament teaches us again and again that every child is a blessing of the Lord. And the continuing of your bloodline and of your family name was very critical. And so male children particularly were considered a blessing to carry on the name of your family and to, to continue on the influence of your family among the 12 tribes of Israel. But in, in large part, the empire considered children as kind of a nuisance until they were old enough to reason until they were old enough to make some kind of useful contribution to society. And so many people looked down on children, and perhaps some of that had rubbed off on the disciples. Maybe they thought they were just not worth the time. Maybe because of the disciples' lofty view of the work that they were doing, that they were spreading this incredible transformational gospel, they felt they didn't have time for Jesus to put together a line and go through and bless every little child when he could be preaching the truths of God. He could be uh, proclaiming divine uh, information that the people needed so that they could draw nearer to the Lord God. So maybe they just felt that those blessings were trivial compared to the greater focus of their mission to preach the truth. Or maybe they had even lost track of the fact that the mission they were on was at its heart a mission to reconcile people to God. And little infants, children, though they are small, are still people and still very valuable to the God who created them. Jesus notices that these disciples have tried to turn away their concerned parents. And then those who rebuked these disciples are then rebuked themselves by their master. Jesus tells his disciples, let them come. Guys, you're not saving us time by excluding these children you're not doing many favors by lessening my workload. Let the kids come to me. In fact, you're kind of missing the point by sending them away. These little ones are not a distraction. They are in some ways representative of the kinds of people who enter in and participate in the kingdom I have been preaching about. Jesus doesn't want these little ones sent away. And in, in turn, we also want to just encourage you as a, as a body, if you've got little children that you would kind of like to have in service with you, don't ever feel ashamed to bring them in here. We want kids involved in our services, and we recognize, we understand that sometimes that will create more noise in our services. We understand that sometimes a baby will cry out, or a child will loudly ask his parents questions. We know this is true, but we would rather see families together worshiping and experiencing the, the blessing of his true word than see families split apart all the time 
We love our children's ministry and that's available. And we hope that your kids will not only participate in this service, but also in a children's ministry too. We think that would be a great combination of giving these kids a chance to see what real adult church -like life is like and then also to have some specialized teaching that will help them as children to receive the gospel in a way they can understand it and connect with kids their age. So don't feel ashamed about bringing your kid into a service here. And likewise, if we are First Family Church, then don't give a parent a hard time who's bringing their little children into the service as well. Give them extra grace. Consider the fact that sometimes it will be hard for them to watch after their little ones while still trying to serve God and, and worship Him by paying attention. Let's all have a heart of grace and a desire to see these little ones come near to us as Jesus told His disciples to be willing to receive them. I'm really grateful that Christianity puts such a great emphasis on children. When you think about the other world religions, most of the ones that I'm familiar with and have much exposure to do not put a huge emphasis on kids. In fact, they're sort of just there for the ride until they get old enough to be able to start to become little philosophers themselves. But in Christianity, we see that there's a great emphasis on children. Uh, uh, children are exalted to a point of value in God's eyes. And I rejoice in the fact that Jesus here reinforces that point as he tells his disciples to let these little ones come near to him. In fact, he goes beyond that. He doesn't say they are just simply acceptable to be near, but then he tells his disciples that these children are in fact representative of those who belong in the kingdom of God. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means, that's very strong language, will by no means enter into the kingdom. All who are called, all who receive, will do so like a little child. So it's critical for us to understand how a little child receives. What is God talking about here when he equates the heart of one who is repentant, the heart of one who can trust Jesus Christ, to the heart of a child? I want to first take a moment to clear up perhaps some misconceptions about what it means to have childlike faith. Many have criticized the very notion that grown men and women should aspire to have faith like a child because they misunderstand what aspects of childlike faith Jesus is highlighting here. To be absolutely clear, childlike faith is not blind faith. By telling us to be like these little children, Jesus is not inviting us to check our brains at the door. He's not telling us to put on hold our better judgment about things like angels and demons and God and supernatural miracles. Let's all just play make-believe and pretend for a little while. That's not what having faith like a child is about. He's not arguing us to play some make-believe game together so we can get a kick out of the story or so that we can get a little encouragement. The charge to have a childlike faith is not a call to foolishness. Blind faith is wrong because blind faith scorns discernment. It scorns discernment. And discernment is something that God again and again in His Scripture tells us that we are to strive to have. He could not on one hand say, have blind faith, and on the other hand say, be a people of understanding, a people of discernment who are not easily led astray. He could not tell us to be both things without being in error. Blind faith is dangerous because it doesn't pay attention to what is true. But a child is constantly building his foundational understanding 
of the world around him. With every use of his senses, that little child is trying to discern what is true. A child is endlessly testing what is and what is not. A child is reaching out and touching the thing that he is told not to touch because he wants to find out if it really is that hot. A child wants to explore. He wants to know if what is told to him is real or not. A child is ever guessing and then experimenting to see if her guess leads to the truth or leads back to the drawing board of theory and conjecture until a more solid and working understanding of the world begins to merge in their little formative minds. A child lacks the experience to have a finely tuned sense of discernment, of course, but a child is seeking it out. That child wants to become discerning. A child is exploring and discovering and asking questions, not just for the sake of asking, not just to drive you crazy, but because that children really wants to know what is real, what is true, what is good. Children are learning to be discerning. So we're not talking about blind faith here. Blind faith cannot be our goal because blind faith would receive any shepherd without discrimination. If I was just having blind faith, then the first person that said, follow me, I would say, oh, all right, here we go. I don't know where I'm going. Go ahead, leave me alone. I'll just go with you. That's blind faith. But that is absolutely not what we as Christians are called to have, is it? In chapter 17, we were also discussing the kingdom of God. We were talking particularly about the return of Jesus Christ and how the kingdom to come would one day manifest itself in such a magnificent way. And people were asking, when's this going to happen? And Jesus says, don't focus so much on the when. In fact, no one knows the when. And if somebody says to you, look here, or come over here, look there, that's where Jesus is coming back, then do not listen to them. In other words, don't blindly run after their speculation that Jesus is coming back. Later on in the book of Timothy, in the book of Thessalonians, in several of these letters that Paul writes, he urges us to be cautious about the people we let teach us things. He says there will be people who arise in these later days, and what they're going to do is they're going to try to teach you the very thing you want to hear. They're going to be good salesmen of things that sound spiritual, but they will not be telling you the truth. So you, my children, must learn to know the difference between good and evil so that you can reject what is evil and embrace what is good. We need to learn the voice of our shepherd, don't we? Children are not blind in their faith. A child does not just follow anyone who says, come this way. If you want to put this to the test, I uh, challenge you. After service, go tell my kids, hey, come get in my car with me. Let's go to the park and see what they say to you. They're going to say, oh, thanks, no. Where's my mom at? They're going to go run and look for mom, or they're going to try to find me. Now, granted, there are a couple of people in this, this congregation that have established such a deep bond with my kids. They have earned that respect. Their voice is not the voice of a strange shepherd. Their voice is a voice of confidence. So if Megan Ryther were to come up to my kids and say, hey, your mom said you're supposed to come with me, they might just say, well, okay, because Megan is our babysitter. And my kids learn to respect Megan. My kids would probably listen if Pastor Chris or Pastor Paul said to come with them because they've been taught to respect their pastors. Their pastors are there for their good. 
But a child's not just going to listen to the voice of anybody who comes and tells them to do something. That would be blind faith. But children are not blind. They are loyal, yes. And so as mothers and fathers, we must nurture that loyalty. A child is going to trust mom and dad because mom and dad are mom and dad. They're not going to trust mom and dad because mom and dad have given them a detailed explanation of everything they've told them to do. They're going to trust mom and dad because mom and dad are in a position of respect over them and have shown them love and care. Now, if you want to be a bad parent, you can take advantage of that and you can manipulate your kids or take them for granted, but that's not what the God's scripture tells us to do. We must cherish that desire to trust, that loyalty in their hearts and treat them with respect. But kids are not just going to go after anybody who calls their name. John 10, 4 through 5 says, And when he brings out his own sheep, speaking of Jesus, the good shepherd, talking of himself, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. They will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. In fact, the most dangerous voice in the world today is the voice that sounds like it's preaching the gospel, but is preaching something twisted that looks like the gospel. So we have to be very careful about who we let lead us. When we are called to have faith like children, we're not called to have a blind faith. We're not called to just blindly follow anything that has the Christian label on it but we are called to learn who is in authority over us and to trust them loyally, like a child will trust mom and dad. Childlike faith is not blind. And Jesus has good reasons to tell his followers that if they want to be a part of the kingdom, then they should seek to have a childlike faith. They should seek to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. Let me give you some good reasons why they are a good example to us. A child knows he's a child. Now, this might sound very kindergarten level, but it's a little deeper than you think. A child knows he's an, a child. A child loves to pretend that she's an adult. She wants to play house and pretend like she has babies and pretend like she's putting her kids through school. But a child is very much aware of the fact that she is just pretending. Children understand that they are children. They know they can't drive the car. Children know that they can't pay the bills. Children know that they can't just behave as if their word is final authority, but if they try, they're going to get punished. They know it. They understand this as children. They know their place. That child knows she's a child. She is beholden to the greater authority of her guardians, and for the most part, she's at ease with it. Friends, we all grow out of that, don't we? Every one of us will eventually grow out of this comfortable feeling of being led and being taught and being ruled by somebody who's wiser than us. A child knows they're a child, but a teenager rarely knows they are a teenager, right? They think, once they hit that magical age of I've experienced one or two things in the world, that I know it all. They think they're 30, they're 40, they've got all the wisdom they need, and they don't need anybody to tell them where to go or what to do. Sorry, teenagers, you all know it's the truth. I experienced the same thing when I was a teenager where I felt much more confident in my experience and my knowledge than I ever had a, a right to feel. I knew about this much and I acted like I knew this much. 
So Jesus tells us that we need to have faith like a child because we need to see ourselves for what we really are, friends. We are morally immature. Provisionally dependent. We cannot provide for ourselves. We cannot discern good or bad apart from the help of God. We are in great need of direction and guidance and nurture, even as grown adults. Even some of our senior saints here would admit to you that they know God well enough to know that they must still consider themselves a child in His presence, that they need to be guided by their God. Now, I know you might be saying, well, you don't know my kid. My kid's six going on 37. He thinks he knows everything. He, he wants to run the household, and I get it. Sinful rebellion shows up even in the littlest of children. But I think we can agree here that for the most part, a child knows that he or she is a child. And he's not yet fighting that truth too adamantly. It's something we tend to grow out of, and it's something we need to reclaim if we want to come near to this God who will always be a father to us if we trust in Jesus. Secondly, a child is not ashamed of his meekness. We all know what meekness is. Simply, I think, because of the fact it sounds like weakness, a lot of people think a meek person is just something who doesn't have any strength. But in reality, meekness is a word that entitles very good strength. It's strength to know what you don't know. That's what meekness is. Meekness is teachability. It's the ability to be led in the right direction, to know who to follow and to be willing to follow. Instead of being stubborn-minded and insisting on going your own way, even if it's the wrong way, a meek person will say, I'm going to do what you've called me to do because I know that that's the best. It's different than what I had originally planned, but teach me, lead me, show me, guide me. A child's need for direction is very clear to him. And usually he can see that it's a waste of time to try and pretend like he can figure out everything on his own. For many grown-ups, in contrast, H-E-L-P is a four-letter word, is it not? We as adults have become so enamored with the idea of independence, of personal maturity, that to recognize our own personal limits of what we can understand, of what we can see, and then to appeal to someone beside ourselves for assistance would almost be like admitting utter defeat and failure in life itself. We cannot stand often to ask to be taught something or to ask to be shown how to do something or to ask for help. This week I, I bought a, uh, a new car. Um, my car's getting pretty old. I needed something a little newer. I always buy used cars. It's just my thing. I used to be a mechanic, so it doesn't make sense for me to buy a new car. I, I buy older cars because I can keep them up. And I was very grateful to get this, this car. I was excited about it. And I broke it within 48 hours. And so uh, I'm on the side of the road, and I need some help. I need someone to give me a ride. And uh, I'm thinking of who I can call. And I, I called a couple of brothers to help me out. Sam Ewald helped me out. And of course, my good friend Shane helped me out. And ironically, Shane is the one I sold my old car to. And so you can imagine how stupid I felt as he came to pick me up in my old car that was not reliable enough for me to keep around as my daily driver as we drove away from my new car. And I put my hand on the dash of my old car and said, I should have never quit you. That was humbling to me. 
I'm very grateful that I have friends that did not mock me in my moment of weakness. We do not want to be helped, do we? We want to be able to say, I can do this by myself. I've got this figured out. Don't show me. I can figure it out on my own. Don't explain it to me like I'm some little kid. I got it. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. But listen and consider the faith of a child who is eager to absorb knowledge. A child who desires to learn more and every new discovery is a wonder to them. We can have that kind of meekness, but it's going to take some humility, friends. We've got to jettison this, this foreign concept that we can somehow be self-dependent and together all the time. We've got to get rid of this pride idea that we don't need help from anyone else. Complementing this inherent meekness that children have is the fact that most children have a strong sense of wonder and can be pleased with the simplest of things. They don't need constantly the newest or the greatest. Children are often, especially the little ones, I think we're teaching our kids to be dissatisfied earlier and earlier, unfortunately, right? Your, your eight-year-old might be really disappointed that he's got a, 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 a 2DS instead of a 3DS, right? But if you look at little kids, little children, on Christmas time, when they tear open the boxes and you spent hours trying to find the coolest toy on the market, you got that Coda pillar, right? That's going to teach your kid how to be a computer wizard and, and one day they're going to make millions and take care of you when you're old and gray and can't take care of yourself anymore. You got this great toy for them and they open it up and the, the most amazing thing is the box that it came in. Or they'll spend hours making balls out of the wrapping paper and throwing them at each other while the brand new shiny toy lays on the side that you paid $60 for, right? Little kids have a sense of wonder and satisfaction in even the simplest of things. And when we come to love and appreciate God, we will experience more joy when we can just think about the simple virtues of His love for us. It doesn't have to be expressed in some physical gift that he gives. It doesn't have to be expressed in some complicated truth. It can be expressed in the simple fact that he loved us so much, he gave his son Jesus for us. And in doing so, made a way for us to have our sins cleansed forever, that we can just get on our knees and close our eyes and pray to him, and he will listen. If we can have faith like a child, then I believe that those simple interactions with God will mean more to us the less we try to be some consumer-driven adult and the more we realize that it is good to be a simple child in the presence of our holy God. To have faith like a child is to realize how much you have to learn and to be happy to let the Lord teach you. To understand the Word as His great guiding lamp that directs your path and illuminates your otherwise wandering steps. Thirdly, a child is at ease with his dependent state. <clears throat> is there any more dependent creature on the earth than a human child? They are utterly defenseless, especially for the, until they grow their teeth. Then they get a little, bit, a little bit prickly. But before they've got those teeth, a little baby can do you almost no harm. A human child cannot meet their own needs. They can't get the thing that they need for themselves. They are absent-minded. They walk through life missing the very plain things that are in view. I've had my kids ask me where their shoes were while they're wearing their shoes. 
God bless little children, right? They are dependent upon us. They are so caught up with learning and figuring out the world around them that the grown-ups have got to make sure and guide them with the simplest of things, like not wandering off into the road or not jumping into a pool before they know how to swim. So too should the man or woman who desires to enter into the kingdom take a very sober look at the dependent state of their soul as they stand before God Almighty. Friends, we are much too confident that we can figure out what is best using simply our own intellect and reason. Independence has served us well as a country, but in many ways it has made a serious negative impact on our spiritual health. We often try to blaze our own trail and leave God in the dust until our trail leads us right into a brick wall and then we turn and pray that God will come and get us. How much better would it be for us to, in humility, adapt this dependent attitude that children so often have and realize that we should not be ashamed of the fact that we need Thee every hour, that we must appeal to our God, that we should constantly be seeking Him, that we should second-guess our instinct until we can compare it to the truth of God's revealed Word, which is the standard for us. Part of the reason we're in such a sorry state as a society is because we're a bunch of moral children playing dress-up. We're acting like we know what is right and what is wrong, when in reality, apart from the wisdom of God, we justify things that are wretched. We convince ourselves that something is acceptable when it is not in any way pleasing to the Lord our God, and we ex exercise freedoms that we have no business exercising. We dishonor God again and again, and yet in our pride, we believe that we are doing the things that make us good people. This must be good. It makes sense to me. But does the Lord God lead us in that direction? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, help us to understand how beautiful it is to be dependent on the Lord. He says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, as newborn babes, Desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Friends, so many of us have tasted that the Lord is gracious. We've seen his huge blessings on our life. We've seen his abundant mercy, as he could have very well punished us harshly for what we had done against his word, and yet he showed us patience and long-suffering with him. We have tasted of that grace and yet we need to remember that that grace is better than the independence the world is telling us to live by. That being near to that God and trusting in Him and letting, us guide, letting Him guide our steps is better than pretending like we have it all together and can blaze our own path. A man or a woman has to come to terms with their sinful state in order to be able to seek the Word of God asking that the better judgment of their good shepherd be wisdom that leads them and helps them to grow out of their immaturity and their tendency to choose what is wicked. And that's why a little earlier, Brother Paul, in his prayer, asked that God would soften us to hear the word, that we need to even ask God to help us be dependent more and to realize our need for dependence so that we would not come into a time like this where we're studying the scripture together and just think the, smart of, the smartest among us will blaze the path. 
Those who really have great minds will understand, and those who don't will kind of get bits and pieces. No, rather we should come into this time of studying God's Word, asking the Lord to just illuminate us, to give us light where darkness used to persist, to, to, to help us to depend on this Word for our nourishment and for our strength. <clears throat> I want you to notice that Luke's choice to introduce this story with the word infant rather than the word little child, I think helps to emphasize his desire for us to realize how truly dependent we are to the Lord God. An infant could not even waddle its way over to Jesus. They had to be brought in the arms of mother and father. So too, it connects us back to the concept we learned last week. That that super sinner, that tax collector who could not pretend to be righteous, who was reminded all the time by the stares of his judgmental neighbors that he was not a good man, realized clearly his need for the Lord God and was able to come before him and cry out, God, if I am to be acceptable to you, you must make me acceptable. I cannot work my way to you, Lord God. As he beat his chest in self-deprecation, Lord God, make me holy so I can be near to you. Do you see the, the way these two stories, this parable and this real life event dovetail together? I want you to open up your Bibles now. Flip to Matthew chapter 18 for a moment. I want you to see how, how really um, tied well into the Gospels this concept of being like a child is, that there is a congruent thread throughout the Gospels of Jesus urging us to have this kind of faith, this kind of humility. Look at Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? For some reason, this was constantly on the minds of the disciples. We've already seen this in Luke chapter 9, and we're going to see it again in Luke chapter 22, where the disciples were closest to Jesus, though they should have known better, are preoccupied with who's the greatest among them. So in verse 2 of Matthew 18, then Jesus called a little child to him. Come here, come here, son. Set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Part of the process that God uses to convert you will involve taking your dysfunctionally matured heart, your heart that you think is grown and that you think understands all things and you think is, is sure and set, and he will have to disassemble some of that. He will have to unlearn some of these things that you have taught yourself are okay. He'll have to reverse the effects of living as an independent soul that does not honor the Lord God and bring it back to a state where you're able to once again see your need to learn and to grow and to be led. This is a humbling truth, but it is an, avoidable, an unavoidable reality of the Christian faith. To come before the one who is wise in all things is to see that you are not as wise as he is and to either reject that greater one's authority or to bow yourself before it and let that loving, nurturing, infinitely wise God 
give you his wisdom so that you can displace the deceptions that you used to embrace as truth and replace them with what really is in fact true and real. A child is at ease with his dependent state. And what else has the scripture taught us? The scripture has taught us that a good child honors his mother and father. Knowing that his mother and father have been given a position of authority over them, he not only recognizes his dependent state, but he thanks, he's thankful for the one who has been set over him to help him be mature, to help protect him in his weakness. So too should we honor God, the one who sustains us and gives us all that we need, who teaches us and who leads us along. We should give him honor and glory and praise. We should not become dependent to him with bitterness, wishing we could pass him up and be like he is, but instead we should honor the God that created us that corrects us, that admonishes us, and that presses us on to greater maturity and understanding and virtue. Until we come to terms with our utter dependence on the Lord, we will not honor him the way that we should. We will be something less than his children. He will be something less than a father to us if we will not allow ourselves to humbly embrace the role of a child. To enter into heaven, we must get to a point where we have a childlike faith now that does not mean, friends, <clears throat> that God desires us to have the maturity of a child for the rest of our lives. That does not mean that he desires to keep us dull and dependent forever. We will always be to some measure depend upon him. But he does desire us to grow and to mature. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And this is what we're doing right now, isn't it? We are coming before the word of God because we need to remember to be humble. But we also come before the word of God because we need him to nourish us and make us stronger so that we don't walk through this world susceptible to people who would lead us the wrong direction. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 4. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. This is the Apostle Paul admonishing the church at Corinth. Why? Because they were embracing some aspects of childlike faith, but they were not realizing that even with that humility and that meekness and that dependence, there's still room for them to become wiser. They need to be learning greater truths that will help them to understand and walk stronger as sons and daughters of the living God. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, it is implied there, right, that the Hebrew believers should have been growing, should have been maturing, should not be as vulnerable as they used to be. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Remember, a child like faith is not a blind faith. It is a faith that is seeking the right kind of discernment and knows that it needs help from the father to gain it. A mother and a father, if they are a good mother and father, desire their children to grow up, to become men, to become women, 
to follow in the righteousness that was modeled to them. But that mother and father will always have a motherly and fatherly affection towards their children, will they not? As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. You've probably read that little book with your children. And as my kids get older and older, I'm starting to feel the pressure of them developing and becoming like young men. My son joined youth group, and I'm thinking, wow, I've got a kid in youth ministry. That just blows me away. And as I send him away on a youth trip, and as I see him acting more responsibly, and I give him more responsibilities at the home, I'm in, at the same time very proud of him for taking on the mantle of responsibility and maturity. But he still is my little guy. Each one of my children, as they grow up, I will desire for them to become stronger and, and to need me less but I will always be there as their father, just as the Lord God wants us to grow and be able to walk in these truths that he has given to us. We must always have the right attitude that we need him, that we cannot live without him. We should desire to grow, but we should never desire to grow out of our humility, to grow out of our meekness and our wonder for God and his truth. So you might ask yourself, how do I get that childlike faith? If you do not yet know the Lord God, this might be some new concept to you. You have maybe been bitter towards Christianity because it seemed dumb to you. No one had ever explained it to you that there is a God of truth and reason and goodness that is dependable. And in order to come near to Him, you have to come with a humbled heart, with a posture of willingness to receive what only God can give. How do I get that childlike faith? Well, the dysfunctionally mature heart is stone-like. It believes it is formed and it finished and it knows everything important and that it can handle everything on its own. But if you desire to have this childlike faith, what you need to do is ask the Lord God to give it to you. We need the Lord to soften these hardened hearts, to regenerate us, to help us to start over and make us born again. It is a work of the Spirit. And if you desire it, then it's very likely that work has begun already in you. If you today desire to have a soft heart where a hard heart now exists, then I bet that the Lord God has got you pulled aside for great things, that He wants to make you His son or daughter. Respond to that stirring in your soul with prayer and study and, and seeking the Lord with newly opened eyes. In John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus approached Jesus. He was a Pharisee, one of the ones that came boldly before the Lord last week in the parable we talked about. So this man, he saw that Jesus was different. He saw that the power he displayed could only come from God. And so part of him wanted to believe, but he was not yet quite ready to fully believe in Jesus Christ. It took time. But by watching Jesus handle himself in the face of opposition his attitude towards Christ began to change. Initially, when he met with Jesus at nighttime, under the shadow of darkness, because he was not yet ready to let people know that he was meeting with Jesus, he said, Jesus, I think that you're from God. And God says, uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, well, listen, unless you're born again, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's talking about this conversion that we spoke about just moments ago in Matthew chapter 18, 1 through 5. It's talking about this change of heart where we stop behaving like stubborn adults that know everything and start beginning to become like children before him. He says, unless you're born again, you can't enter in the kingdom. 
And of course, the Pharisee says, well, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. How can I enter into my mother's womb again and be born? And Jesus, you know, says, ah, you got to be born of water and of, of spirit. And he doesn't really even take the time to explain that too much. He knows it's going to take a while for this Pharisee to get it. Later on, that Pharisee is hearing others criticize Jesus, and he tries to stand up for Jesus because he sees the logic of what Jesus is doing. He sees the reason behind it, and they just tell him to be quiet. They tell him his word has no place among them, and so he shrinks back again. But he's watching, and he's listening. He's seeking. And eventually, we get to the end of the book of John, and Nicodemus finds. He sees Jesus go willingly to Calvary. He understands the dignity with which he carries himself as he is mocked and scorned and crucified to death for sins that he didn't commit. And for Nicodemus, as he realizes the truth of the gospel and why Jesus had to die, we see him come with another man named Joseph of Arimathea. After they had taken that body down, he comes forward publicly to take that body and to give it a proper burial, to lay it to rest with dignity. And in doing so, he identifies himself with this rebel who had just been executed as a treasonist, as one who was trying to incite rebellion against the empire of Rome. It took Nicodemus a while, but eventually in humility he realized that he must surrender his life to this Jesus. So if you desire that childlike faith, keep seeking it. I would love to meet with you. If you have questions about what it means to follow after Jesus Christ, let us know. There's a little card in the front seat back in front of you for prayer requests and praises. Lots of us fill those things out and put it in the metal box at the back. If you want to just fill that out and check the little box that says, I'd like to meet with somebody, we would love to meet with you this week and share with you the glory of, of knowing Christ and how your heart can be childlike, as we've talked about this morning. But you might say, Pastor, how do I get that childlike faith back? I started with that kind of faith. I started strong. I was humble before the Lord God, but now that I'm seeing the word before me and I'm examining my life, I think my life has become much more hardened. I have not been enjoying the good blessings of God. Rather, I've been bitter. I've been covetous of other people's blessings. How do I come back to that state where I'm like a child before God again? Let me just real quickly, because we want to still practice uh, communion today. Just give you some simple direction on what to do. If your heart has become somewhat hardened, but you, you call Jesus Christ your Savior, and you desire to have that softness before Him again, you want to be like that child in His arms, then start by doing this. Repent. Just repent of that sin. Don't be ashamed to say that I'm a Christian and I, and I still sin. Don't be afraid to say that. Not one of us in this room is a repentant Christian that has graduated from sinfulness. We all still struggle with keeping the law of God. That's what it's there for, to teach us our great dependence on Jesus. So if you feel like your heart has become hardened, then go to Him in prayer. We talked last week about the importance of specifically repenting about real things that you have done or attitudes you have had. And so go to the Lord God and say, God, I have been acting like a grown-up when I really need to act like a child before you. Please give me direction. Please forgive me for acting so boldly before you that I pretending like I didn't need your strength, like I pretended like I pr provide for myself. Help me to see how much I need you, Lord God. Bring me back into, into your arms. I've, I've messed up, and I'm so very grateful that you are willing to bring me back and to reconcile me. So please, forgive me of my sin. Repent. Secondly, remember. 
Remember what the Lord God has done to make you His. And as we enter into this time of communion, think about the elements that we're going to be experiencing here in just a few moments. We're going to be taking the bread, which is representative of the body of Christ. That God loved us so much, He sent His own Son, Jesus, who, who did not consider it robbery to be equal to God. He was God in heaven. And then He humbled Himself and took on flesh to become man with man. He still was in all ways truly God, but he took on the limits of our flesh and our nature so that he could walk among us. The bread represents the fact that he took on flesh and that he lived sinlessly before us. And the, the juice represents the blood of Jesus Christ that he allowed to be whipped out of his body, that he, he was willing to bleed for us so that we might have our sins paid for in full. The direct consequence and wage of sin is, Romans 3.23, death. And Jesus was willing to pay even that ultimate price for us. And so as we eat of the bread and we drink of the juice, we're brought back to the wonder of the cross. And we remember again how much he loved us in such a real way to legally make us right before God so we could be justified as that tax collector who came before God humbly and said, Lord, I can't do it. Bring me to you. So repent and then remember the great victory Christ has won in your life. Remember that you were once new to him and he was wonderful to you and reclaim that for yourself. Return to where you were before. The third R is return. Return to the practices you probably had when you first found Jesus, when he was brand new to you, when you could not wait for Sunday because you wanted to be with the brothers and sisters in Christ, worshiping your God, singing praises to him. Return to that place in your heart where he is new to you again. Return to that place in your heart where you can find and rediscover those great differences between God and man. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. When you come to seek this God out, you seek somebody whom like there is no one else. No other human being, no other created thing can compare to his beauty and his wonder and his knowledge. So return to him in the word. Open your Bible again like you used to and read it with fresh eyes. Let him lead you and teach you. Go to him in prayer. Desire to talk to him throughout the day. Return to that practice of becoming close to your God. And then finally rejoice. Rejoice that God has made provisions for people like us who sometimes let our hearts get hard again. For people like us who are prone to wander. Rejoice, friends. We trans transfer now into this time of communion. Rejoice in it. Rejoice that God regularly wants to remind us of how humble we need to be before him and how willing he is to receive us even when we fail at being humble. Do you remember the words of Revelation chapter 21? How it begins with this beautiful proclamation. It says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, 
There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. You worship the God this morning who can make all things new. That includes you. He can regenerate what is dead. He can restore the innocence that you believe the world has taken away from you. If your heart has grown calloused and fearful over time, return to the Lord and let him restore to you the youthfulness of a childlike spirit that rejoices in trusting God as your true father. Would you bow with me for a time of prayer? God, we love you and we thank you for caring for us so deeply that you would give us your word. Lord God, please permit us to receive it with humility and live it out according to your will. Thank you for all that you do in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.